Good evening. Our second Bible reading is from Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 20, and it is on page 1026 of some of the church Bibles. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening again. Um, we're going to be starting on this new series tonight, The Heartbeat of Our Church. It will go for five weeks. And that's because we want to see and reflect upon our own hearts and the heart of our church, whether we beat in sync with God's heart, whether his desires are reflected in our desires, what he loves, whether that's reflected in what we love and what he longs for, whether we long for the same thing. And so today we'll be starting on the first one, God-centered lives. And so let's uh, join our hearts again. Let's pray to God. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll speak to us as we reflect on these words, the great invitation and call of Jesus to follow after him. And we pray, Lord, that you'll help us reflect on our hearts and to see whether we are living God-centered lives. We pray, Lord, that in your kindness you might make that happen in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I wonder whether you have ever thought about the legacy you will leave. Have you ever thought about that? How will you like to be remembered, if at all? What difference do you think your life will make in this world by the time you leave? I was thinking about this the other day, not that I think about this often, but I was thinking about this just the other day, the day before school started for our kids. I was cutting my son's hair in our backyard. I have offered in the past to cut my daughter's hair as well, but she would resist. Otherwise, she might look like me going to school, a girl's school, and that's no good. But anyway, while cutting my uh, son's hair, they obviously couldn't get away. And so I thought, here's a wonderful opportunity for a father-son talk. And, you know, if he moves, he's going to muck up his hairstyle, so is he's bad. And so I thought, here's a great opportunity, father-son talk. And so I asked him, excited, new year, you're a year older, a year hopefully wiser. As a father, what type of wisdom, what wisdom could I impart upon my son? Well, I could say, what I hope for you this year is that you'll be more popular at school, that you'll have a more comfortable year this year that you'll be more accepted this year i mean sounds fair any father will want his child to to be popular to be accepted but i didn't say that 
though there was a part of me that hoped for that. I could have said, I hope for you to this year beat all your friends at school in all the subjects. Beat them all. Top the class. I want you to do well because if you do well, you will succeed in life. You'll get into a good course, you'll get into a good job, and you'll be comfortable, far more comfortable than, than we are now. I could have said that, but I didn't say that. Though there was a part of me that hoped for that. Instead, I, I thought, here's a wonderful opportunity for a father-son talk. I wanted to say something. I'm just still cutting hair. I'm not sure if he's listening to me, but I'm talking to him. I, I wanted to say something that reflected what was on my heart, what my deepest desire was for him. And so I said, well, school is starting tomorrow. However this year goes, do you know what it is that your dad hopes for you? And then I said to him, what I hope for you and all I hope for you is that you'll be godly this year, that you would love God and serve him, that you'll live and lead a God-centered life. Now, again, I don't know how much he was listening. He probably wasn't thinking so much about that. He was probably just hoping that I'm not going to muck up his hairstyle. I finished the haircut. He looked pretty good, I thought. He wasn't too happy, but I thought he looked pretty good. <laughs> but it did get me thinking as I reflected on that and as I was speaking to him. What is the impression that I want to leave as a father upon my children? What is it that's most important upon my heart that I want reflected in their hearts? What is it that should be, in fact, reflected in the hearts of all Christians? Well, isn't it this, that we all live God-centered lives? Lives that are centered upon God, on Him, and not on us, on me. Lives that can say with certainty and confidence, I know God, and he knows me. I mean, shouldn't that be the heartbeat of our church? And wouldn't that be a, a legacy worth leaving? But you see, a God-centered life, if we as a church, if we're really serious about this, it is in fact choosing the harder life, the more difficult life, the costly life. If we're really serious about living our God-centered life, it is far more difficult. It will be costly and painful. In fact, if the world was to look upon us and see that you would choose to live for God instead of yourself, they would look upon that and say, that is absurd. That is folly. I mean, we all live for ourselves, don't we? We want to live for, I want to live for my happiness, for my ambition, for my worldly pursuits, for the adventures, for my security. I want to live for my life. But you see, a God-centered life is choosing a costly life because it's centered on God and not on me. But that is exactly what it's meant to look like for every single Christian. Not just some Christians, not just those who are more serious about their faith, but all Christians. And it is this passage that will show us whether we are really serious about the things of God. It is this passage that will reveal in us whether we're sincere and genuine about our faith in God, 
or whether we're just putting on a show. So what does a God-centered life look like? Well, God-centered life is a cross-shaped life. A God-centered life is a cross-shaped life. And it is choosing a costly life. Not an easy life. Not a relaxed life. Not a comfortable life. And so that begs the question whether some of us here have been told a different gospel, have been persuaded into a different Christianity. You see, there's no other type of Christianity. The only one is the one that Jesus speaks of here. So let's have a look. Do keep your Bibles too open to Matthew 16. If we have a look at this and see what Jesus says and his call, a gospel-centered life is a cross-shaped life. So look at verse 24. If anyone would come after me, Jesus is inviting. If you want to follow me, if you want to come to know God, if you want to come to have a relationship with God, if you want to be able to call heaven your home, if you want to have eternal life, if you want to have the privilege of calling God Father, then come after me. You see, Jesus didn't say here, if you want all of this, just sit on your laurels, rock on your rocking chair, and just wait around. You, you have to be active. Come after me. And then we read on, verse 24 still, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Now, isn't that strange? We're never told by the world to deny ourselves. But here, Jesus is making that a point. To follow Jesus means you forget yourself. And so Jesus is saying, you can forget it all. You don't need to worry about it because I will take care of you. You don't need to worry about your interests. Follow me and I'll take care of you. You don't need to worry about your relationships, your security, your ultimate safety. Just follow me and I will take care of you. You don't need to worry about your reputation, your ambition, your achievements, your successes. Just, just follow me and I'll take care of you. You don't even need to worry about your life. Just follow me and I'll take care of you. And then we read on. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now do you see why it is so costly to live the Christian life? It is extraordinarily costly. It is taking up the cross. You see, Jesus didn't say here, if you want to follow me, pick up your suitcase and we're going to go on a cruise. That's not what we see. He didn't say here, take up your diamond-encrusted golden chain and come after me. He didn't say that. He didn't say, take up all your creature comforts, the jacuzzi, the credit cards, and come after me. He didn't say that. He said, take up your cross. And in the ancient world, who were those who were made to take up their cross? They were those who were headed towards the crucifixion. They were those who were headed towards their own death. And if that is your life, your path, you're not going to have time to be invested in the things that won't last. It's why 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, he once said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He bids him come and die. And so what Jesus is saying, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to live a life that is centered upon God, I just don't want a part of you. I don't just want your right arm and you can keep your left arm. Jesus is saying, I don't want just your head and you can keep your heart. I don't just want your Sundays or two hours on Sunday and you can keep the rest of the week to yourself. Jesus is not saying, I just want some of your bank account and none of your other possessions. No, not at all. Jesus is saying, I want you, all of you, your whole being. Hand over your whole self to me. Be wholehearted to me. And that is something we all need to reflect on, especially those of us who call ourselves a Christian. We call ourselves a disciple of Jesus. We need to reflect on this. Because if we're half-hearted when it comes to the things of God, in our love for him, we only give a, a little bit of love to him, in our sacrifice to him, we only sacrifice a little bit, a little bit of our time, our money, our efforts, only a little bit, so long as it doesn't make me uncomfortable or feels like a cost or affects my lifestyle. Or when he makes demands upon us, we say, well, demand only so much, but go no further. You see, if we're half-hearted with the things of God, towards God, we may be able to fool each other. And it's very easy to do that on a Sunday when we're gathered like this. But there's no fooling God. You see, he sees whether we take him seriously. It was C.S. Lewis. He put it this way. He said, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. You see, a God-centered life is a cross-shaped life. And so we need to ask, if that is what it means to be a disciple, if that is what it means to live a God-centered life, who in their right mind would choose that? Who would in their right mind choose that over living for me? I mean, why would we want that for ourselves and for each other here? Well, though it is costly, it is the only life worth living. Have a look at verse 25. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. You see the paradox there. If I want to live my life to try to save my life, and so I live for myself, I live for my security, I hold on to whatever I can cling on to. I live for my career, I live for a big bank account and a healthy nest egg. I live to find security in life. In the end, it's all false security. It will not guarantee anything. Why? Because with all that stuff in this world, we will still be headed towards the grave. But the paradox, if I lose my life for Christ, if I place my life in his hands, if 
I place my life in the one who's gone before me, carrying his cross, going up on the cross, nailed to the cross, the one who bled for me, the one who was crucified for me, the one who died for me and was raised to life again. If I place my life upon him and submit myself to him, there I find life. Ultimate security, absolute assurance and eternal life. It's why it's the only life worth living. And so C.S. Lewis again in that same quote here, he continues, Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit, I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I'll give you myself. My own will shall become yours. We lose our life for Christ, we gain life, we find life. In fact, if we do the maths, Jesus shows us here, it is in fact far more costly to not follow Jesus. And Jesus here, he puts a value on our soul. On your soul, he puts a value on it and he says, your one soul is far more valuable than all the entire world. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Do you know that our government has placed a value on an Australian life? Our government places a, a value. It's a term called the, statistical, the value of statistical life. Do you know how much your life is worth according to the government? They use these figures for insurance and all that business. How much is the life of an Australian worth? Well, an Australian, an average Australian is valued at $4.5 million dollars. Four and a half million dollars. As you age, that value decreases. If you're from New Zealand, you've got a lower value. It's 4.1 over there. And probably New Zealand dollars, so it's probably even half that. <laughs> but what Jesus says here is that the value of your soul is far more than four and a half million. In fact, it's more than all the things in the entire world. And so if you had to pick and especially those of you who are still exploring Christianity, you haven't yet decided. If you had to pick, would you pick the wealth, the gold, the silver, the fame, the glamour, the applause of men and women, all of that? Or would you pick your soul? Well, Jesus says, pick your soul. Choose your soul. And so look, verse 26. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? And so when I was um, giving my son a haircut and as I was reflecting on what I'll leave him, reflecting on what I want upon my heart to be reflected in his heart. Again, he may not be listening too much, but it was very easy just to wish and hope that my son will gain perhaps not the whole world, not the entire world, but at least a larger part of it than what I got. But you reflect on this. What good is it if he gains even a part of that, even all of that, and forfeits his soul? I'd rather him deny himself, carry his cross, and follow Jesus. I'd rather him live a God-centered life. And that is a life worth living. Because you see in our next verse, in the end, what is this about? It's not just about 
human opinions and human ideas. In the end, this is about heaven and hell. This is about whether we will have life or death. This is about whether one day we'll face God as judge or father. And so look at verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he'll reward each person according to what he has done. There is a reward for those who live wholehearted lives that are God-centered. And at the very least, isn't that to hear the sweet, sweet words of the Messiah, of Jesus, good and faithful servant? You see, these few verses is the heart of what it means to be a Christian, to live a God-centered life, to be able to deny ourselves, carry the cross, means we can live then with eternity in view. It means that we can live a life now because eternity is already in the pocket. We can live a life now that is so radical, so fearless, because we've denied ourselves. We found life already. You see, when you hear stories of Christians who live like that so fearlessly in this life, so radically because they are so assured of their eternal life, it should encourage us and stir our hearts. Now, you may have heard the story of Jim Elliot. Heard of him? He was a young missionary who went to Ecuador to try to share the gospel amongst the unreached people group of the Amazon rainforest. And so these people were unreached, never heard of the gospel. He and his four missionary friends, they spent months preparing, and eventually they found where they were and they set up camp close to their village, hoping that they would be able to build a friendship with them and share the gospel with them. But instead, from that village came back to them warriors who speared the five missionaries to death. Jim Elliot, he was only 28 years old. But even as a young man, he believed this passage and he lived it. He once said this, He is no fool to lose what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Isn't that wise? Why hold on to the stuff when you can't keep it anyway? Lose it all so that you can get what you cannot lose. And wasn't he just there reflecting on what Jesus said? For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. You see, a God-centered life is a costly life. But it is the only life worth living. And so the question now comes back to us and to you. Is that you? Can you say, I am living a God-centered life? Am I living for God and not me? Is my life shaped by the cross and not by the culture? So how do you think you are going? How do you think we as a church, how are we going? Do you see amongst us, in our fellowship, in our discussion, in our sharing, not just on Sundays, but out of Sundays, do you see amongst us a God-centered life that is shaped by the cross? How do you think we are going? You see, if you, as the church family, 
if you were to observe the life of the eldership and the life of the ministry team of Michelle, Ollie and myself, if you're to observe us for a while and you do not see at all a pattern of God-centered living that is shaped by the cross, you don't see it at all laying down of our life for you in love and service of you, and you do not see at all any costly sacrifices that we make for God, his honor, and his church. If you do not see that as you watch us, then we have failed you. And if the world observes the life of this church, watches us, and they do not see a pattern that is so countercultural, so radical that each of our lives, we're, we're not living for ourselves, we're living for God. They watch us and they see the costly, uh, costly things that we do for the sake of the gospel. We make financial sacrifices, fi uh, sacrifices in our time and effort, denying ourselves the, the things of this world because we're carrying the cross. If they not see any of that, then as a church, we've failed the world. It is why it has to be the heartbeat of our church. You see, no point being a church where we do not live a God-centered life that is shaped by the cross and to follow Jesus in humble discipleship. But of course, we recognize here, even in this story, the eldership is not perfect. We as a church, you and I, we're not perfect. But we do not need to be. Because we may drop the cross. What do we do? We pick it up again. Because we're still following the one who went ahead of us, who carried his cross and died on the cross for us. And so how would you like to be remembered? What will your legacy be? You see, how we live and what we impart shows what it is that we really value. Now again, I don't know whether my son will remember what I said to him at all. But it brought to my mind and my heart, am I living that God-centered life that I want of him, to model to him? I always find great encouragement reading the stories of Christians before us who, who really lived that out who did not only speak it, but lived it out. A God-centered life and left a wonderful God-honoring legacy. Just this week, I came across a few letters that were written by Jonathan Edwards. Have you heard of him? He was perhaps one of America's greatest theologians. He and his wife, Sarah, they lived that God-centered life. They had many children together. And when their son, Jonathan Jr., was 10 and wanted to go on a short-term mission to the mountains to reach the Indians, to share the gospel with them, and it was dangerous, you could be speared to death. Jonathan and Sarah, the parents, allowed their 10-year-old son to do just that. Isn't that amazing? Today, a 10-year-old child, you don't let them cross the road without adult supervision. But Jonathan Edwards, in this letter, dated the 26th of May in 1755, he writes a letter to his son, and look at what he expresses to his son. 
He said to his son, Take heed that you don't forget or neglect him. Always set God before your eyes and live in his fear and seek him every day with all diligence for he and he only can make you happy or miserable as he pleases. And your life and health and the eternal salvation of your soul and your all in this life and that which is to come depends on his will and pleasure. I am your tender and affectionate father. That's a letter he wrote to his 10-year-old son. You just wonder how many 10-year-old boys and girls today would understand something like that. But what did that show about his own heart? Living a God-centered life. He was living that and he wanted that reproduced in his son. But he did do that. He not only said it, he lived it. In 1758, Jonathan Edwards became president of Princeton. He contracted smallpox and he died shortly after that. And his wife, Sarah, she was obviously devastated. She wrote a letter to her daughter, Esther. Esther, who was 26 years of age at that time, her own husband only died six months earlier and her father just passed away. And so Sarah wrote this letter to her daughter and she said, My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands upon our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am, and love to be your affectionate mother. Isn't it wonderful just to hear the stories of Christians before us who knew the cross, who carried the cross, who taught it, who lived it, and he leaving that legacy to his family. So what should be the heartbeat of our church, of each one of us? Or is it not this, that we all live God-centered lives shaped by the cross? That's a legacy worth leaving. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness in your dear Son, Jesus Christ, who did not only talk the talk but walk the walk, who carried the cross himself, and died in our stead, that we might have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. So we pray, Lord, that you might grant us the strength to deny ourselves and to carry our cross and to follow after him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.